see will be your love. Love God, love your neighbor. That's where we're going to end up tonight. So hang on, we'll get there. I started each night with an observation, I called it. Pastored from being a staff pastor to a senior pastor for 16 years. And it took all 16 years to make these observations. And of my very near 40 years of age, I know you didn't think I was quite that young, but the bald head always ages me. It took me all of those 40 years growing up inside of the holiness movement, inside of the church, the formation of my grandparents and my parents, to come to these observations as well. And I think when you state them out loud, I think as we've done the last two nights, right, that we've all got to the place that we agree, that the observations are true. And I've used these two simple words to describe the core observation of why the church today needs revived, restored, renewed. Ready? We're tired. Right? That's where we've been. And I've talked about this. Why are we tired? I think it's because we simply are carrying around burdens and idols that are too heavy for us to care, carry. First night, we talked about this burden that we have pursued religion as a performance or a competition when in fact It is the gift of God who pursues us out to where we find ourselves and then says, come on, come on. Remember that? And finally, we shuffle our way over towards Jesus and find his embrace. Are you with me? I think we talked about last night that one of the reasons that we're tired is that we live in this rat race fueled by the lie of scarcity and security we talked about. And if we are to experience this wholeness of Christ, life of Christ, holiness of Christ, we must begin to to leave behind that sense of conduitness, judgment, separation. Remember that story? We must begin to realize that we are all beginners in following Jesus, and we must realize that we are the target of grace. Are we not? You with me? And then I think tonight, an observation... We are burdened with idolatry. And then this line, our lives have become a liturgy of anxiousness. Wow, we we got quiet fast there. It's okay, you could say it. I'll give you time to adapt to the idea. I believe our lives have become a liturgy of anxiousness. We're going to go further. Money and possessions are our God. I'll just keep reading. I'm not going to look up for a bit here. It's all right. (laughs) Consumption and production are our worship. And here's just where we're headed tonight. If the church is going to experience what I think God is doing around the world, right? What I think is happening. If we're going to jump on board with what God is doing, we must begin to know what it means to live neighborly, right? That's where we're headed tonight. I I told you that over the last few years, I found this great gift uh, of spiritual direction where I have had a mentor in my life that that I'm able to meet with regularly, and he's an 84-year-old man who's been steeped in the scriptures. Some people would know who he is by his writings. His name is Walter Brueggemann. 
And every time I get to meet with Walter Brueggemann, I, I sit in front of him and I, I walk away seemingly changed because of the wisdom that he's able to present and speak into me. Shane, uh, a, a, a wandering sometimes and lost in my own presence, trying to figure out what it means to pastor in the culture we live in today. And I remember one time sitting in front of him and I asked that question, Dr. Brueggemann, what does it mean to be a pastor today? Help me. Now, the path that he got there was about an hour long. <laughs> As he journeyed, much like I'm going to do tonight, through Exodus and through the Old Testament and around and around and around. And in the end, he set his coffee cup down and that's when I knew it got really serious. And he leaned back and he kind of smiled and he chuckled and he said, ha, you know what, Shane, I, I guess maybe what it means to be a pastor today is it means that you must be a non-anxious presence among the liturgy of anxiousness that is the church. And that's a lot of words, I know. But I believe, I believe it's dead true. What does it mean to be a pastor today? What does it mean to, to be in mission of God today? It is to be a non-anxious presence in the midst of the liturgy of the church that is filled with anxiousness. And you have to ask the question, what creates the anxiousness? What is the liturgy, right? What does it mean to be non-anxious? Maybe we'll get there tonight. I should also note, as I have every night, that the book that we began to walk through together after I asked that question and in spiritual direction was a book that he wrote called Sabbath as Resistance. And much of what I've brought to you comes out of that thought. But as you know, we've had a theme verse, and I'm not for sure if it's on the screen or not. It is. That's great. So let's read it together tonight. And I've said this before. I put it on the screen, and I present it out of the message for the sole purpose that maybe some new language, we would hear what Jesus is saying to us. Are we ready? Jesus speaks to us today and says, let's read it together. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Oh, I love those words. Thanks be to God. This heavy yoke that is in the traditional translations that we often refer to, this heavy yoke and an easy yoke that Jesus is referring to, it certainly includes, if we pay attention to when Jesus says it, how he says it, and what he says it to, it includes definitely the context of the rule of Rome and Rome's demanding taxes to support its constant military adventurism. And Jesus begins to walk into this context of what is happening and says, this yoke, this burden of taxes, this burden of, of caring and paying for somebody else's, Rome's, military adventure, this has got to be very heavy and exhausting, Jesus says. And we said, amen. yeah, amen, right? And the people around Jesus said, it is, you're right. And they leaned in a little closer. 
And then I'm thinking that, that probably they begin to understand that as Jesus continues to speak and say, and the yoke that I want to give you, the way that I want to give you, is a little bit different way. And they begin to say, well, what, a second, what are you talking about? Because your, is your tax rate lower? Or is it, uh, what, what, what do you mean? I was going to make a joke there about Nazarene taxes, but I decided not to. I'm going to move right on since the DS is here tonight. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure that Jesus also began to speak into kind of another way that that yoke affects us and those that would hear him. Because I think that Jesus is also referring to another system, not just Rome, not just empire, but also Jesus is speaking about temple. We'll put that big word on it, temple. Or in other words, as we talked about last night, those established requirements of religion of the day that created a set of membership requirements that most people couldn't qualify for. You understand me? It's the low hand. Remember that last night? It's the welcome of the church, the posture. Rather than being saying, let's determine on who's on the outside, wouldn't it be amazing? Wouldn't it be amazing to watch what happens when, when all of a sudden those members that are walking in, what if the church was the one that initiated the embrace and said, come on in, brothers and sisters. Would you embrace the grace that God has for you? And let's learn to walk together and follow Jesus. Wouldn't that be good? Because I'm pretty sure that's what they heard when Jesus begins to say, my way is different. There is this different kind of life that Jesus offers to us that is different than this Rome and then in this empire and this, this temple. It's a life of discipleship. We use the words often here in the last few nights, a following of Jesus, the path of holiness, following of Jesus and living our lives. Listen, this is Dallas Willard's words, just as Jesus chose to live his, that is the definition of Christ-likeness, the definition of holiness. And tonight, out of that same theme again, freely and lightly, we'll return to where we were last night at the foot of the Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, if you have your scripture, Exodus 20. We'll begin to, to lean into this place in Exodus 20 to, to help us walk towards where we're going, this non-anxious presence, and what does it mean for us as a people and a church? Because here, the foot of Mount Sinai again, we, we find the former slaves of Pharaoh's Egypt, having been led out of slavery by God and by Moses to the place in the desert. They've gathered themselves together, and God has named them as His own. We talked about that last night. Giving them the transformative miracle of identity. You are mine, God says, right? Then we have Exodus 20. We begin to experience something different. It's more than just an identity change. It's more than just this miracle of being claimed by God. But now we have, Walter Brigham calls it, the regime change. I like that language. It's interesting. Because rather than Pharaoh's people, now whose people are they? God's people. There has become a regime change. And you can imagine, can you not, a people who have been steeped in the life of slavery, who have known nothing more, and now experiencing freedom, being gathered together, and they are claimed and named as God's people, and now they're like, well, now What? Okay, so yeah, okay, we're yours, God. Yes, we commit to obey all that has been set before us, they say. Now, what? Verse, verse chapter 20, you ready? We know them, by the way, as the Ten Commandments, <laughs> right? Exodus chapter 20. 
I like to refer to them as the policies of God's government. Isn't that nice? The way of which society is formed and governed under the rule of God. You with me? Jesus, by the way, speaks of this kind of, of politic, of way, a way of discipleship as well. We already know this. We, we know the Ten Commandments. Like we say them and we know them, do we not? Jesus, by the way, summarized them. How did Jesus summarize the Ten Commandments? We know this. What did he say? You shall... Uh, that was, I mean, if we were taking a test, I'm, I... it, it, was, it was decent put it that way. Yeah, Jesus said, here's a summarization of these commandments, right? Love God, love your neighbor. But if you read Exodus 20, perhaps we should realize what Jesus is summarizing in love God and love your neighbor. Because in Exodus 20, we begin to realize that, that this deliverance of the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel, it begins with a reference to Pharaoh in Egypt. Look at verse 2. I, the Lord said all these things. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Everyone standing at that moment at the foot of Sinai could well remember what the life, the former life, was. You with me? They all knew what was being said when God says, I, the Lord your God, brought you out of that. They knew what that was. Walter Brigham in his book lists this list saying, here is what they were remembering in that very moment. The people of Israel, as they stood there, having received this new identity, we are God's people, we will obey whatever commands you put in front of us, God. Thank you for rescuing us from that. God says, yes, I'm the Lord your God. I, I rescued you from that. And that is, they could remember that Pharaoh was thought of and thought of himself as a God. An absolute authority who placed his will on those under his rule. They, they thought of Pharaoh, perhaps even, Certainly Pharaoh's people thought of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh thought of himself as a god. They could remember Egypt's economy was organized like a pyramid, right? With the workforce of their backs producing the wealth that flowed upward to the elite and then eventually to Pharaoh himself who sat alone at the top of the, period, of the pyramid. They understood how the economy of Pharaoh worked. They could remember that Pharaoh, even though he was in absolute control, was endlessly anxious about the collection of food and gold. They could remember that Pharaoh, who controlled the River Nile, which connected all of the land, who was, it was the life force of everything around, who, who had absolute control over the Nile River, he, he had nightmares. He would dream. He was, he was fearful. He was anxious. And what did he fear? He feared famine. We've got to get this. While his barns are full of wheat, his mind and his dreams and restless nights were filled with the conviction 
that creation would fail him and not produce enough food for his future. They could remember that Pharaoh was consumed with this thought of scarcity, which led, by the way, to Pharaoh's pursuit and his policies to control all the money, all the cattle, all the land, and the bodies themselves of his slaves. They remembered that. They remembered, too, Pharaoh's brick quotas. They could remember when their identity, their name, their worth was solely based on whether or not they could meet the brick quota of the day. They could remember all of that when God spoke, Exodus chapter 20, and said, I am the one who brought you out of the land of that, Egypt, out of the house of that, slavery. Would we agree that they were a tired people, worn out, carrying a yoke that did not create or sustain life, did not produce fruit that we talked about last night? The only thing it produced was bricks and bricks and bricks, right? And as they stood there at the foot of Mount Sinai, having received this new identity as God's people, they are now giving a new command about how to live as God's people. God spoke, and each time with a very exclusive claim. Just as Pharaoh had previously claimed their identity, now God is saying, you are mine and you will serve my purposes. It was familiar language to the Israelites. But the policies, the way of Pharaoh and God couldn't be further apart. Are we ready? We'll keep going. Exodus chapter 20. I, the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents, to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. But show steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrong use for the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not equip anyone who misuses his name. Now in that passage, we've got the first three commandments. This demand of God's position as Lord, his ownership of the people, sounds very similar to the claims of Pharaoh. But what sets God apart from Pharaoh is what follows next. Because what happens? Rather than this unceasing demand of brick-making, the fourth commandment says this, unheard of to these people standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. They never had a day off in their life. You with me? Six days shall you labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male or female slave, your livestock, or any alien resident in your towns. For six days the Lord, speaking about himself, made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in it, but rest of the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Now if you're with me so far, 
You'll remember last night that the requirements that Isaiah mentioned when he corrects the ancient text of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, that require was, very simply, honoring the Sabbath. Do you remember that? Never would Pharaoh be able to actually say or even have a moment of of thought of, take a day off of production. Pharaoh was too consumed by anxiousness, by fear, too worried about his fear-filled dreams. Pharaoh, listen, couldn't trust creation to provide, even though he controlled the Nile. But this God, this new speaker of the mountain, if you would, this God is the creator. Are you with me? This God is quite confident that the Israelites could take a day off and God would still hold the world together. Are you with me? Verse 12 through 17, God continues to speak as he begins to organize his people. And he says, honor your father and mother so that your days are long and the land of the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, we get this, right? The first three of those commandments, love God. God is claiming an identity, putting himself above all other gods. You ready? The fourth commandment tells us to honor the Sabbath. Rest a little bit, would you? Would you trust me, God says? Do you think I can hold this thing together? I made it. (laughs) I think I got this, God is saying. Do you think you can... You can just for one day, you can put some trust in the fact that the world will operate while you take a nap, <laughs> while you take some time off. Do you think, God says, that, that I've got this thing? Are you with me? Those are four. There's ten. I'm pretty sure Pharaoh's list would have been more than ten. And I'm pretty sure they all would have been about serve me. Love the Lord your God, will you trust me? And the next six commandments, do you know what they are? Love your neighbor, right? It's, it's about practicing neighborliness. It's about how to live well in community. It's about how to be a, a good neighbor to, to do life together. Jesus is right, by the way, of course. These Ten Commandments are wrapped up in the simple sentence sentence of love God and love your neighbor. But as Jesus summarizes it, and clearly as God presents them, these are significantly different than Pharaoh's demands or empire's heavy yoke. What makes the difference? Not Pharaoh, not the empire of Rome, nor our American culture dares to imagine that loving God, that taking Sabbath, leads to the creation and the maintenance of a neighborly community. That was a big sentence, but it's important. By the way, there were no neighbors in Egypt. Are you with me? Only threats and competitors. There were no neighbors in Rome. Only land and people to conquer. But God comes along and says, let me me give you a new way of living. Let me give you a new way to organize life around this. Love me. Love your neighbor. 
And it wasn't just a mission statement or a motto for Jesus. It is the very heart, the very intention of God for creation and his people. It is the will of God. It is the prayer of Jesus. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And guess what, church? We should have known this. We see it from the beginning in the story of Genesis. We see it at Mount Sinai. We hear it in the prophet Isaiah. We get a picture of what it means in Jeremiah. Even the prophet Micah tells us, God does not desire your religious work, but what God desires is act justly, act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Love God. Love your neighbor. And guess what? As Nazarenes, we should know this too. It is our very core. It is our very nature. It's our very story. It is our roots. Love of neighbor. The church of the Nazarene, I know you know this, is born in the work and ministry to the poor. That's our history. That's who we are. And I don't know the reports that DS listened to, but I'm going to take a flying leap that I don't think I would be wrong on this. If you go to those places that are beginning to see that effective growth and that effective mission, do you know what's happening in those places? It is ministry to those who are desperate to hear good news. That's what it is. It's the churches that you're planning in downtown. Jesus said it very clearly. I came for the sick (laughs) and the broken. (laughs) Sorry about that. You with me, right? Thank you. I'm almost done with that anyway. That's good. I pastored for eight years in Lee Summit, Missouri, which is a suburb of Kansas City. Dr. Jaron Rao, he's our DS, wonderful man. Some of you knew him, and I need some good stories if you have them, please, from his days here in Chicago. I'm about ready to lose my voice, so I'm going to put this cough drop in my mouth. I hope it's not a problem, all right? We'll be all right. I went to New Beginnings Church in 2007, something like that. And what's the story that they were in? I wouldn't call it church split, but it was church drama 101. I know that there, there, there's other parts of the country like Chicago District and things like that that don't have to struggle through those kinds of things. So <laughs> that's good. That's why it's safe to tell this story here. Because I know I won't talk about any familiar things. I've been on staff pastor a couple churches in Cincinnati and worked for some great, great pastors. And I came in to a lead role of a church that was what I would consider relationally, theologically, and financially broken. I, I don't just describe it of that. That's how they describe themselves to me. So I had permission to say that. Um, 2007, 8, do you remember what kind of the world looked like at that point you know, in terms of economy? The beginnings in great faith. Uh, it was a church of probably a couple hundred people had built a $2 million building that would seat 700 people. 
it's okay to be like, hmm, that's okay. That's all right. I promise you. That's all right. Um, we spent about, at that point when I came in, it was about $16,000 a month to maintain a building that we use for two hours a week. It was a beautiful, beautiful structure. I mean, gorgeous. We're going to pour ourselves into the work of ministry there. People began to come around and come to the church and support. But this weird phenomenon happened. As I would go out and to the block over and meet the neighbors and invite them to church, they would show up. It was like, yeah, we're, we're there. We're coming. Begin to preach, and I would say to them, God loves you. And they would say, are you serious? I would say, yeah, God loves you. Would you like to believe? And they said, yes. And they would come, and one after the other, people began to accept Christ Jesus, and the church began to, to expand. But there was this odd phenomenon that the people that were coming in through the doors, can, can, is it okay if we can just like be real honest? Can I talk about this? We would, we would preach, we would do the church thing, we were loving on people, but that person that would come to the door, they were so trapped inside of this anxious empire of debt and a liturgy of production and consumption that to invite them into participating in the life of the church seemed like an impossibility for them. We began to work with people financially and say, we really need your help, we're paying $16,000 a month, we can't afford this building. We build it out of just great faith. And we were truly reaching people in the community. But behind closed doors and with this little thing we call a board meeting, um, it's a great time. It was not very pleasant. Because you know what happened in that board meeting? We would sit down... And the anxiousness was so thick, you could barely have a conversation. Because it was your fault and your fault that we're in this situation. You voted for this building, and I didn't vote for it. You pledged, and then your business went under. You owe us some money. You with me? And it was story after story. And two years into that journey, people that I love dearly that live next door to the church and the house after that and the house after that, they get, began to say, something's not right. Like, this is weird. And they began to, to leave the church. You're following the story, right? You know where it's going to go, don't you? Two and a half years into that journey, I called my DS. wasn't the first time I called him. I think he probably attempted to block my phone by that point. <laughs> I said, I, I, need, I need help badly. I don't want to do. At this point, I'd been promised a salary. I mean, come, you've got to pay the bills. I'd taken other jobs in order to replace that so that we could use the income that the church was going to pay me to pay for a building. That was the right thing to do as a leader. 
And I sat in front of our church board one day, and I said, I don't know what to do. I can't do this anymore. It felt like an extreme failure. That's what it felt like. I called my DS, and I said, what's the process for resignation? Because I need out, like right now. And he said, let's talk about that. <laughs> I believe... I believe I might be the only pastor in the Church of Nazarene that's ever resigned the same church twice. Interesting story. Uh, went to the, to the church and said, this is a problem. We can't live in this cycle of anxiousness that is produced by a debt. Because the debt and the consumption and the production has robbed us of the mission of Christ. We didn't know what to do. And by the way, I should say here very clearly, it's not the building's fault. You hear me? Debt was the issue. Anxiousness was an issue. So we went in, and sure enough, they accepted my resignation, and I was no longer pastor which was a wonderful relief for about two weeks. I was standing at the graveside of my grandmother in South Dakota, and I had just offered ashes to ashes, dust to dust, as we buried my grandmother, and my phone rang. I was too young of a pastor and too determined to try to figure out how to rescue a failure to not, not answer the phone. And I did. There was a friend on the other end of the line and a board member, and she said to me, Shane, if you have any love for me, which is a very dangerous thing to say, this was on a, this was, by the way, on a, on a Saturday morning. I was in South Dakota. It's 12 and a half hours from Lee Summit, Missouri. She said, if you have any love for me or the people of New Beginnings, can you be at church tomorrow at 10 o'clock? <laughs> and I said, no. <laughs> she said, okay, think about it. I hung up the phone, I turned around to my wife, and I said, I just got a call, and they're wondering if we can be at New Beginnings at 10 o'clock tomorrow. And she said no, but much stronger way than I had. <laughs> 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 and I got in the car, and we began to drive south towards the farm, and uh, I kind of do that, and she goes, uh, I pull into the farm, and I said, I'll pack, and she said, okay, I'll get the kids, <laughs> and we loaded up our van, we drove all night, I got to her house, went in and showered, going to the church, it was extremely awkward, I walk up to the front, and I say, hey, come up here, full house. Somebody gets up. Shane Ashley, thanks for being here. We have a letter we would like to read to you. And it began. I cannot tell you the words of that letter because I didn't hear any of it. But the gist of it was this. We have failed. We have allowed anxiousness, production, and consumption 
to become our liturgy rather than the mission of God. We're not asking you to ever accept a call, but we want to make sure that we say we have failed. And I told you I resigned the same church twice, and the second time was four years later, but that's, that was a different story for a different reason. We obviously came back. We came back with a condition a little bit as the board sat down, and that was this. We will do whatever it takes to resolve the debt. You with me? So we began to pray as a people. And we prayed, gathered, prayed, gathered, and prayed. Now at this point, thank you, at this point the, the bank was involved as well. I'm not sure they were praying, but it was a different kind of a prayer. Uh, it involved some emails and some things like that, you know. Tried to restructure. They would say, well, why should we and whatever else. You know the process, right? You've been there. Somebody help me out here if I'm embarrassing myself. My nose is running like crazy. Sorry. Am I good? Thanks. And I prayed and I prayed. Finally, I got the final email, and it said, we would like to notify you that we have an answer for your prayer. <laughs> Didn't say that. <laughs> that on Mar uh, February 28th, uh, you have one final payment due on your loan, and it's $2 million. This was in January, I think it was, so we had it was roughly 60 days or something like that. And we prayed. And we gathered in the sanctuary on Sundays. No longer did we gather and sing songs of worship. We gathered at an altar, and we prayed. I had a meeting with a young guy who was planting a church on the other side of town, and they were interested in leasing the building, and it would at least resolve maybe like a third of our payment. And I went to the board, and I said, this is it. We have, like, this is it. Like, this is going to take this burden from us. Let's do a little building swap and share. We'll bring in this church. It'll be a great thing. We'll join in the mission of God. Let's get this thing going, all right? And it was not a bad deal. I'll be honest with you. I had the contract in front of them for a lease, and the church board said, no. And I said, are you kidding me? You... You promised me. <laughs> I said, no, no, no. When, when, when we committed together, when we covenanted as a pastor and people together, you remember that, Shane, when we said we were going to pray that we would be relieved of the debt? Do you remember that conversation, Shane? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. We are going to hold on and believe that God is going to deliver us from the debt. And so I had to call my pastor buddy and be like, I'm really sorry. Deal's off. It's a hard thing to do. That board meeting was on a Tuesday night. Next morning was Wednesday. I was sitting in my famous spot in Panera Bread on Chipman Road in Lee Summit. I was typing away, praying, and I heard a guy on the phone behind me really frustrated because clearly a contract on a building that they were trying to buy had just fallen through. And I said, hmm. So he hung up the phone and I said, I'm really sorry, I didn't mean to be completely listening on your conversation, but I, I think I've met you before, and I, if I understand right, you're trying to buy a building to plant a Christian school, is that right? He said, yes, he said, but the building we were buying downtown, the city is 
something happened with it. We just lost our contract on it right now. I'm on the phone. I said, that's funny. I know where there's a building that might be for sale or use. <laughs> he said, well, let's get up and go look at it. And we started to walk out the door, and he said, wait a second. Are you, are you Shane? Are you, are you with New Beginnings up here? I said, yeah. He goes, we've been trying to call your church phone for months, but it seems to be disconnected. I didn't want to tell him why. seems to be disconnected. And uh, so we walked over to the church and toured around. Toured around. This was a Wednesday. He said, do you mind if I come back tonight with our leadership team? I said, no problem. Here's the key. I came back, looked around Thursday morning. He called me and said, we think we'd like to, to make an offer. Uh, we, don't, we don't want anything to happen between our conversation when we can make an offer like he was scared we were going to sell it to somebody else, apparently. <laughs> I said, no problem, we can wait. He said, oh, well, just give me 24 hours. I said, okay. On Friday, he dropped an envelope off at my desk at the office and called me and said, hey, I dropped an envelope off. Can you pick it up, take a look at it? We would like to make you guys an offer. And I went and looked at it, and I was shaking like this. So I decided not to open it. That was a good thing to do, right? We got together Sunday morning with our leadership team, and I said, you remember that really stupid decision you guys made on Tuesday night? You remember that? I didn't say that. <laughs> and I sat from him, and I said, I got this weird sense that God is beginning to do something. Let's open this up together. We opened it up, and there's an offer to buy our building for more than a million than what we owed on it, which was probably a million more than the building was worth. I tell you all that story to tell you that that we closed on the church. We sold our church building on February 28th. Do you remember what I just told you a little bit ago? Do you remember that? I'm convinced that the only reason that it was the February 28th was that so that there was no one that could ever say, I, the Lord your God, have brought you out of the land of debt, and I have set you in a new place, and I have given you a new way. Convinced of that. I don't have time to tell you the rest of the story, but over the next four years, that community of people who decided that we would no longer spend our time in, non or in anxiousness and in consumption and production, but we will give ourselves to the mission of God. That people helped start 13 small businesses in the community, seven nonprofits, and four faith communities. That community of people continues to multiply and be a blessing in its neighborhood as it seeks to give itself away for the sake of people. Do you know why that has happened? Because we step back from anxiousness. We step back from this sense of consumption and production. We step back from a way of empire, of getting bigger and better and stronger and more safe. And we said, let's give ourselves away for the sake of God. Now, not every story is going to look like that, so don't try to tempt God. Commandment number three, by the way. <laughs> but I am convinced 
that if we can get our own selves out of God's way, God wants to do something great. And if we can begin to join God in this effort of saying, there is something to this way of neighborliness. Love God and love God by loving your neighbor. If we can figure out what it means to to drop that hand of welcome and say, come on in, brothers and sisters. Let us live and embrace this way of grace. We are all beginners in following Jesus. Let's figure out what this means together and we can begin to walk together. God will do something amazing with that. I don't remember what's on my notes over there. I forgot I had another story to tell you. But I think we'll end there. I'll talk some more a little bit about that tomorrow. We are people who, if not for the grace of God, remain enslaved to Egypt. And I wonder if this revival that we gather together, this way of summit, you know, summiting ourselves, this way of holiness. I wonder for us if it's going to start with I wonder if it's going to start with with your neighbor. I know it doesn't sound very revolutionary. I get it. I have a lot of confidence in it, though, because Jesus said it. So that's it. Not a big hurrah tonight. No, no big tears. I've given you a lot of tears in the last couple of nights for myself. But just this. Love God. Love your neighbor. Be holy. Be holy.